welcome to Maine's Oyster Aquaculture Podcast. My name is Bill Perna. Here we have weekly conversations with oyster farmers, many who are marine biologists, ninth generation fishermen, or former hedge fund guys, but all are driven by the desire to work on the water and to fight the impact of climate change. These are global stories just told locally. Maine faces some big challenges. The Gulf of Maine is the second fastest warming body of water on the planet. But these folks have ideas and solutions driven by science and innovation. These entrepreneurs are a resilient, gritty group. Oyster Aquaculture cleans water, helps coastal communities, preserves Maine's working waterfront, just as it contributes to Maine's economy, the food scene, and tourism. These are stories told with humor and optimism about the best oysters in the world. We are here with Bo Marsh. Thank you, Bo. Appreciate you do- taking the time here. My pleasure. So could you just uh, touch upon uh, your background, your school, what you were majoring in? Yeah, sure. Well, I'm a native Vermonter. My family moved down to Hartford, Connecticut, where I lived for quite a while, and then we moved out to Greenwich, Connecticut, and uh, I went to school there, and then I went to University of Vermont back in Ver- in Burlington, Vermont, and uh, my major was anthropology. I was a big skier, and I worked out west for a while, then I came home and uh, got a career in international finance down on Wall Street, and my specialty almost immediately was uh, South Africa, uh, basically dealing in political risk with the uh, apartheid situation that was there at the time. And uh, as things went on, I left the major firms, which were Merrill Lynch and Deutsche Bank, and founded my own firm and was instrumental in, well, we hope we were instrumental, we tried to be, in refinancing new businesses in South Africa, mainly of the of the new South Africa, the, the black businesses. I sold that company to a large South African bank, Absa Bank, 2000-1999, and then I worked for a hedge fund for a couple of years until I said, this is the heck with this, um, I don't want to die in a gray flannel suit. So I moved to Maine and became a builder. I built my own house and several others. I built a building down on the shore for a group of lobster men and their co-op. At that point, we all became friends and they asked me to to join their co-op as an employee, promoting the business and developing a processing arm of which I did. And we collaborated on businesses for the next couple years, me as the employee, and then they decided they didn't want to do processing anymore because of the downturn in the economy. And I was offered the business, which I took it and said, I will rent from you and take your volatility out of it. And I will take the business risk. And they loved that idea. And we collaborated ever since until they wanted to sell the larger property, the lobster facility. And uh, they offered it to me because they thought that I was a safe person to have it because they trusted me with uh, this beautiful asset that we have here. And so we, in 2016, we, my family's company bought this property down on, uh, uh, on the shores in Bremen. And that's where we are today. 
Let me ask you, what would you think the situation would be here had you not taken over? What would have happened? Well, that's hard to say. I mean, these are really capable, great guys, and, you know, they certainly knew what they were doing. I think one of the reasons that they wanted me to, to keep on going is they saw how I operated and they, they liked what they saw. If, if I hadn't been there, they might still own it or else it might have been sold. The risk that would have been if they had sold it would have been that the purchaser was of the right character to understand what was going on on the working waterfront and how valuable an asset this was not only as a financial asset, as a piece of property, but how important and, and critical it is to the families and the area and the industry at, at, at large. And so if the wrong buyer had come in and changed or developed or taken this out of its current use, it would have been a disaster for the seafood industry in this mm -hmm. area. Yeah, you, you touched on that the other day, talking about how important it was to preserve working waterfront. And that certainly seems like that plays right into the, the need to preserve and keep, not only preserve communities, conserve the way communities operate in yeah. the working waterfront. Yeah. It's such an essential part of that. It is. And, you know, basically what the whole thing with working waterfront is, and, and you know, this is a workplace. This is like a a big office building for a lot of people. It's it's a place people come, it's a place families keep a lot of their belongings, it's a place from which they work. And so it's it's more than just just a place. It's it's really is a it's a real nexus for for all kinds of activities, for fishing, for social in some uh, circumstances, for uh, just a, a whole myriad of things you can imagine what that what that entails it's like more like a village than it is like a physical facility so it is very very important to preserve it but i always like to say that you don't it's not really for preserving right. it's for dynamizing and and sustaining its uh viability and its usefulness within the whole seafood and and you know network and the working waterfront network of of the state the so, adaption yeah i mean it's we want to make it viable and make it grow and make it useful for the future uses as wild caught species become more and more volatile in their ability to be harvested there's new technology as we all know called aquaculture and whether it's oysters or whether it's cohogs or whether it's mussels whether it's uh seaweed and kelp and whatnot these are the new the new additions not the new replacements for wild caught fishing lobster and such but the the new additions the the things that's going to give people multiple income streams again there once was a time back and i can even remember even just 10 years ago when there were multiple species to be caught uh, we all know the names um, you know there's the main shrimp there's uh the the uh the, the fin fish and, and the ground fish industries and that went along with lobstering and even scallops to a point is is diminuated so uh so this is what we have now surviving is really lobster fishing for the most part as the the strongest industry there's clamming and digging clams and whatnot but the working waterfront needs more opportunities for for people to 
make a living from it. And that's where aquaculture really comes in. You had talked a, a bit about uh, the vision of what you were trying to create here as a, what you, I think your words were aquaculture hub. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. Could you talk a little bit about, about kind of the vision and the plans? One, one from what you have accomplished up to now and then what might be the plans? Sure. I'll start out with the premise, with the assumption or with the reality that aquaculture, like any other industry, has to be scaled to an, to a commercial viability, to a commercial size to make it viable, I should say. So, and we all know that, you know, an aluminum skiff and a town landing and a pickup truck isn't going to make much of a dent in the larger, in the larger supply chain of oysters or kelp or whatever you're going to grow. In other words, to be, to be successful, you have to scale. So what do you need to scale? You need Basically, you need infrastructure. And where do you get infrastructure? You get infrastructure on working waterfront. But the problem is, is that not everybody has access to working waterfront. But the fact is, is that there's 15 or 1600 miles of coastline and lots of infrastructure that's available, that's existent, but not available. So it's always been my belief that in terms of this new generation of maritime activities, aquaculture, is that you need to have shoreline infrastructure available to people who want to do aquaculture. And that's basically it. So what our vision here is our, you know, what our goal is here, we're actually beginning to realize it right now, is that we want to make our place, our uh, Bremen co-op lobster pound facility, uh, we want to make that more of a hub for aquaculture people and attract growers and people who want to pursue this in a larger commercial scale to be able to share space our facility. We have three coolers, we have two freezers, we have uh, shoreside storage, we have a pier, a stone dock, which a truck can get down on and pick up and drop off uh, material. We have two heister booms uh, to lift and, and lower. Uh, so we have, and we have parking and ample land for storage of equipment. So it really is our, it's our, it's our goal to provide this, not only for ourselves, but to provide this to other growers uh, and sort of begin to become a, an aquaculture hub around in our particular area. We see this as a potential all up and down the coast as, uh, again, as uh, lobster fishing and whatnot becomes more volatile and unpredictable, that a lot of other, we would like to see a lot of other lobster dealerships and docks begin to provide services for aquaculture too. So that's basically what we're doing. To, to, to that point, uh, you also mentioned, which I thought was very interesting, you're talking about building a distribution system that you already have already in place, but now you're expanding it in Connecticut, as I understand. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, this is all part of this infrastructure. So, Community Shellfish, my company, is quite integrated. We have we deal in a bunch of different species, you know, clams, lobsters, oysters, of course. We're beginning to grow coags. We deal in scallops. We deal in mussels. So, uh, and on the on the other side of the coin, on the distribution side, we 
distribute um, down to Portland, all through the state, down to Massachusetts, and are now branching off uh, to put bricks and mortar down in Connecticut as a distribution center. So again, uh, this is something that we feel like is valuable, of course, to us as a company, uh, but it would also be valuable to other growers who would become right. part of our share space. Right. And we kind of take a different view on it than most. Obviously, we're a business and we're profit motivated, but we do feel that the more that we develop and help our our partners, that the more that this industry will grow and that we're not going to be predatory about it. We're going to be share space about it, about working as partner partners with these people until we get going. And this will be our group. And... Uh, you know, we'll uh, we'll work it that way. How's working with the uh, Department of Marine Resources during the lease process? DMR is dealing with it right. very well. Right. We are. I'll say one thing: right. is that we have a phenomenally good DMR in terms of regulation, in terms of enforcement, in terms of you know getting people on the water. They are really good, yeah. and they understand this whole thing about what we're what we're doing what our challenges are and let me say if there's an impediment to the to aquaculture going it's not the dmr they are so behind us and when they make a judgment on a lease whether it's an experimental or a standard they are very very fair what do you think is the biggest impediment to main aquaculture i think that the main impediment to that is access to infrastructure. I really do. I think that there would be a lot more growers if they could mm. come mm. down and do it and have a place to store gear, have a place to put out gear, have a place to sell their product. That's another thing that's so interesting is that the market for, and this is a second thing, so the markets have not fully evolved for taking large volumes of aquaculture product out of Maine. I mean, there's and so you have two tiers of, of buyers for, for, for aquaculture products. So typically Maine has been like a third world nation whereby they, they take all the great raw material uh, that companies from outside of Maine come in and buy all the raw materials at very low cost, take them out of state and get the value added. So I think that's a big problem, too, because if you have a burgeoning industry and somebody who wants to sell their oysters and the best bid is 50 cents, they're going to sell their oysters. So the second thing would be an organized marketing and sales team and, um, you know, sort of somebody keeping an eye on it. Right. Um, that's, again, like what we're trying to do. Marketing the entire main brand. Correct. Like right. an Appalachian with right. 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 See, like right. Bordeaux. Yes. How many Bordeaux are there? There's That's a right. Thousand. Right. And there's, you know, there's fifty, there's five thousand bottle farms, and there's, you know, million bottle farms, but they all support each other by supporting the Appalachian by the by discerning between the flavors and the grapes. So every, if you like, uh, you know, if you like Merlot with a lot of. With, yeah. you know, Cabernet, that you like that one. And if you like uh, Cabernet with a little bit of Merlot, you like that one. And it's the same thing. Yeah, to, uh, Julie Q said the Damascata is the Napa Valley of oysters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we're the, uh, 
worth of burgundy. Oh, okay, the burgundy. Over here. Yeah. We're a smaller we, production, but uh, we taste more just fun. as good. I have to say, those <laughs> Cora Cressies were unbelievable. <laughs> they are great, they're they? really yeah. uh, briny, and they are they just snap. Yeah, they do. They really snap. Yeah, and they've got a good meaty, meaty flavor. Yeah. But, you know, so just to touch on that second point is what we're doing here, and this is all to do with providing infrastructure and having partners, is on our website, we list five or six oyster farms, and we sell all those oysters, and we market all those oysters, and we we actually have descriptions and contacts and everything, and there's no obligation for them to sell us their oysters, but we will sell their oysters and work with them as partners. What do you think about the future of Maine aquaculture? It can go two ways, right? So either it's going to be remain a small sort of eclectic group of guys like me, crazy people, and me being crazy or, you know, what I'm saying is, or it's going to be something, something big. The other side of it is, is what is that going to look like in terms of marketing and, and, and a broad appreciation for the main product, which is what's going to be needed. And that's, we touched on the wine industry. And I think that a lot of, a lot of can be learned on how either the Californians or the French, uh, those two especially, how they treat and deal with their crews and Appalachians and, and their growing areas and how they support it, especially the French. If you look at how organized they are in their in their classifications and whatnot, mm. I think that if Maine was to take a jump on that, a head start, whoever that would be, and organized it so that people didn't have to say this one is better than that one, but that every oyster would be Has appreciated. A characteristic of right. that. Exactly. Whether it be a Riesling. Right. Third, uh, you touched on is very definitely a problem, a challenge, is water quality. And uh, luckily for Maine, we're sort of the last guardian of good water because you know there's problems in Cape Cod and Chesapeake Bay and Florida's a, a wreck. And again, DMR is so on that. It's being handled as well as it could possibly be. Fourth yep. would be a young industry in a, in a big world, so, but yeah. I think we're getting there. If you like stories like this, visit MaineOysterBook.com for more conversations with the people who have and are creating the story of Maine oyster aquaculture. And you can pre-order the new book from Perna Content, Maine Oysters, Stories of Resilience and Innovation. This book is filled with wonderful insights from very interesting people, and it's filled with stunning photography from some of Maine's best photographers. A portion of the proceeds of this podcast and Maine Oyster Book are contributed to the Maine Community Foundation. The Maine Community Foundation works to improve the quality of life for all Maine people. To find out more, visit mainecf.org. See you next week. Thanks for listening.